0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, high-level delegates touched down in the Solomon Islands for a series of major diplomatic meetings to reaffirm ties with the Pacific. Uh, We want
2: to ensure
0: that our people are thriving in the region and not just New Zealand. We want that for
1: everyone. Also fresh talks take place in Paris around New Caledonia's future and an effort to save one of Tonga's rarest birds is turned into a new book. We'll hear all about that today and more on the show. I'm Kyle Evans, so glad to have your company. But first, we start in the Indonesian region of Papua, where there is mounting concern over the safety of a New Zealand pilot kidnapped by separatists. Philip Mark Mertens was captured two months ago while flying into the region on a commercial plane. He's now the subject of a major security operation by Indonesia's military. But a weakened attack on Indonesian forces by separatists have left up to six military personnel personnel and a dozen missing. Joining us now from the West Papua city of Jayapura is journalist Victor Mambo. Victor, welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah, morning. Look, it's really good to have you here today. I guess just firstly, what's the situation like on the ground where you are at the moment?
2: So, you know, I'm living in Jayapura, but uh, in Jayapura, it's not like uh, in the highlands, yeah? In Jaipura is quite uh, normal because there are many things that people can do here. Uh, here, so only I, I, I went to the city yesterday, and I there's nothing happened. Only in the in the court, yeah, because there is some uh uh some demon uh some co- what we call is uh, in the court because there is uh, there is three. Court process uh, with uh, the issue of West Papua freedom, because uh, the journalist and Victor Yemo uh, uh, case. But in the in the Highland, I I think uh, I hear there's uh, there's uh, some some oppression, the uh, military oppression there and people's uh, civilian there they walking uh, around the village, yeah, some village there, especially in Duga and Puncak uh, and, uh, Regency.
1: Yeah, so the situation uh, unfolding right now is in Duga. It sounds like quite a quite a volatile one. Uh, Victor, how much public support do the separatists, uh, the West Papua Liberation Army, ha- um, uh, how much support do these separatists have uh, for these people who have kidnapped the pilot?
2: Sorry, I don't know exactly how much... Uh, uh, civilian support the separatism here yeah? but uh, because we cannot see clearly about that yeah but i know the, in the highlands the separatists they they living together with them yeah i mean when uh, you know in the in the guerrilla things uh, the freedom factor can living with the uh, civilian so and uh, I think there's, uh, there's uh, there is uh, a support yeah, there, but not uh, clearly how may, how how big the support for the separatism.
1: And can you talk a little bit about the media coverage uh, on the ground and and how this situation is being reported? You
2: know, when we want to go into the location, I mean to the ground in Duga, it's very hard. Yeah? You need, uh, maybe you need one hour with a plane from Jaipura to Nduga, uh, or you can fly to uh, Wamena then use a car to, to Nduga. But if you are in Nduga, you need to walk yeah, in the highlands, yeah. in the, you know, uh, the weather also, can make a problem with us yeah and not only because there's a the the situation there i mean because they have so many uh highlands yeah not highlands. It's like a what we call a small mountain it's a uh
1: yes highlands works yeah
2: yeah island yeah so you need to walk yeah if you have So, when people, when the other journalists asked me about the situation, I, I told them that you need more money, you need healthy things, your, your bodies, uh, you, you need, uh, your body should be health, uh, and you need, uh, strong physically. So, it's hard to looking there, yeah, to get the information there. So, Mm. maybe because the hard to look the uh, information you you only can make a call with uh, some uh, authority uh, authorities authority and get the information from them you you only make a call yeah, yeah so, so, so I think most of the information would be
1: the... would be coming from authorities is that fair to say
2: yeah yeah Yeah. But it's not good for me for me for, for journalistic, journalistic things because you need to get a uh both yeah information from both sides and you need to look really yeah you only can get the clear information when you can come to the ground
1: no, I, I understand. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Kyle Evans. Today on the show with me is Papua journalist Victor Mambo. We're discussing the situation in the, in the Indonesian province of Papua where the Indonesian military were recently attacked. Now i want to talk uh, about that attack uh for the moment, so as I just said mil- military members were attacked over the weekend. We have heard uh there is up to nine deaths uh, and dozens missing. Uh, have those details been verified victor
2: yeah i we call to we call uh some military members here and police and uh also West Papua Liberation Army and they they clarified uh, they 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 clarified that uh, it was happened on uh, saturday but uh uh they they said about the uh, the victim yeah six six uh Indonesian armies dead on Saturday, but then they make a revision on yesterday it's about nine then sorry today is before uh what, on Mon- on
1: Monday, Monday it was they, yesterday,
2: uh, yes. uh, Sunday, Sunday, on Sunday they told they us uh, that uh, nine military members dead, Good. and yesterday they said that uh, 12, but Indonesian military said only one uh, who was dead, but it's not clear, yeah, because some uh, Indonesian military said it's only one who died, but uh, some officials say the uh, there's uh, more than one because some uh, military members still uh, lose, yeah,
1: still missing. And Victor, do we know what the reason for the attack was? So far, uh,
2: I don't know about the information about the military, Indonesian military, but when I call, uh West Papua Liberation Army, they said it's, it's about... Uh, about the operation. Yeah. And also about the both of Indonesian government and New Zealand government, they, uh, they don't give a response from the West Papua Liberation Army letter. They, they want a peaceful dialogue to release uh, New Zealand Kiwi uh, pilots. But there's no response, yeah? no mm. feedback from the uh, Indonesian uh, government on the military. But the uh, Indonesian military only send the troops to the highlands, to the Papua, especially in the highlands. But they want, uh, uh, they demand uh, dialogue, uh, discussion about that, about uh, how to release the Cuban, uh, uh
1: pilots. And... Last question, just on those on those troops that that you said were being sent over. Has there been a, a build-up of Indonesian troops on the ground where you are in in Jayapura, or is what what's the mood like there? I'm sorry, I don't I don't hear you. Has there been an increase in Indonesian troops uh, where you are?
2: Yeah, an increasing, yeah.
1: Yes, an increase. Yes, in Jayapura, in
2: Jayapura and, yes, that's right. Uh, yes, some of them. And some of them were sent to the Highlands.
1: Uh, wow. So, so uh, the mood uh, is the mood uh, still quite stable, I guess. Uh, people? Is there um, nervousness amongst people, or, or is it all pretty pretty normal at the moment? At the moment,
2: Jaypur is pretty normal, yeah. But uh, you know, Jaypur is not Highlands, yeah, mm. because they send some uh, some troops in the Highland, and the yeah, Highland is quite uh, it's a uh, uh no monitoring there yeah, because no uh, journalists there and no uh uh what we call this is like a, yeah authorities in there but they 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 quite uh scary about that so we don't know how the situation there but i i got some information from church it's quite uh watch you now uh,
1: well, Victor, it will be, thank you very much for joining us today. That's, that's all we've got time for, and it's something we'll be watching very closely. And, and, and as usual, we've been saying it uh, throughout this whole ordeal. We do really hope that it all gets resolved peacefully. Victor, thanks again for joining us today on Pacific yeah, Beat.
2: You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you.
1: That was Victor Mambo. He's a journalist in Papua. He was giving the latest on that situation in Indonesia where there is still a, a missing pilot, New Zealand pilot Mark Mertens, uh, who was captured two months ago. Well, the arrival of high-level foreign diplomats at Solomon Island's Henderson Air- International Airport has become a regular sight in recent years. But the arrival of New Zealand's 50 plus member delegation has been turning heads, not only for its size, but also it's the first in a series of high level diplomatic visits taking place this week. And closely watching this in Honiara is the ABC's Chris and Rita Amanu.
3: It's the start of another busy week of welcoming bilateral friends at the Solomons' capital, Honiara, with New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister, Carmel Sepuloni, and her 52-member delegation arriving on Sunday, ahead of UK's Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly later in the week. New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister and her large delegation, in fact the largest to ever visit Solomon Islands, are on a Pacific mission, stopping in Fiji and then Tonga. A visit on what Ms. Sepuloni says is on reconnecting relations face-to-face since the pandemic.
0: For us as a Pacific country, the Pacific region is our absolute priority. Uh, We want to ensure that uh, our people are thriving in the region, not just New Zealand. We want that for everyone. Uh, We want to make sure that we are safe and
3: secure. Solomon Islands Foreign Minister Jeremiah Manele also made assurances to Ms Sepuloni on the importance of collaboration in addressing shared challenges such as climate change.
4: I would like to uh, register uh, our appreciation for uh, New Zealand's ongoing advocacy uh, helping smaller than European states like Solomon Islands to present their case in the regional but also the international uh, forum. And let me also uh, acknowledge the uh, new funding support that uh, New Zealand will be providing uh, through our provinces in terms of uh, an initiative. Uh, to address uh, climate change by way of adaptation uh, to
3: this initiative. A 15 million New Zealand dollars in announcement to fund climate change initiatives in Solomon Islands was also made in what Ms. Sepuloni says is to be directed to the provinces through a local organisation.
0: This is a clear example of initiatives being locally determined, locally led got uh, regionally supported, I guess,
3: uh, from New Zealand as a, as a partner. Ms Sepuloni and her delegation visited New Zealand-funded projects and will have morning tea with some of the seasonal workers before leaving for Fiji.
1: France has held separate talks with New Caledonia's rival fractions about the territory's future. The pro-independence leadership was in Paris for the first time since the independence referendum last year that rejected full sovereignty. Joining me now is Denise Fisher, a visiting fellow at the Australian National University and former Australian consul in New Caledonia. Denise, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kyle. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, full sovereignty was rejected last year. Why were the talks held in Paris this time around?
5: Well, um, the French see this as part of a process. They've set a calendar or a timetable for what they want to see happen over the next 12 months or so towards uh, the next provincial elections that are scheduled for May next year. So this is the first step in that process. They've tried before, they've convened for talks in the last 12 months, which only the loyalists attended. So this time, uh, it's really something that the independence coalition agreed to participate and to go to these talks in Paris. That in itself was quite something. Uh, so that's where we're at at the moment.
1: Mm. Interesting. So w- was, there, was there sort of any real outcome to it? I mean, I guess, what, uh, what did they achieve?
5: Well, on the surface, you could say very little. They, um, At the end, there was nothing to announce. There was no great progress made. But in my opinion, there, there are two real outcomes. The first was that, in fact, as I've said, the uh, independence uh, parties actually went to Paris, which is something. They've all along, since the failed third referendum a year ago, they've all along said they would only – talk to France. They're not going to talk to the other parties from New Caledonia who went. So their discussion with France was bilateral, while the loyalist parties spoke bilaterally too with the French. So the first, the fact that it took place at all is something. But the second thing in my view is I've um, been lucky enough to be able to read the statement that the FLNKS leader Mitan made in Paris. Uh, And I have to say, Uh, and I've been monitoring all this stuff for many, many decades, Um, it is a succinct and moving statement of the independence position. And while I'm sure there were statements by the loyalists, I haven't seen those yet, but um, what strikes me is that um, if someone like me who's been watching this for a long time was moved by this statement, I think it will give pause uh, to both France and the loyalists uh, to stop and think about where we are in this process, why the meeting took place in Paris at all, and where they might head for the future. So there's some hope, in in my view, that perhaps if everyone listens to each other, uh, they can get somewhere.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. What, what about the statement moved you? Can you remember anything specific from it?
5: Uh, yes, the... Um, the statement was one that was clearly uh, prepared very, very carefully. Uh, it started 3,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, um, and talked about the history of the Kanak people, who are, the, as you may know, they're the, the, the major. It's majorly the Kanak people who support independence in New Caledonia. They're about 42% of the population. It traced the history. Uh, their history, their connection with their land, and talked about the arrival of the Europeans, the devastating effect it had on the population, the pandemics that it brought, and then traversed very broadly recent contemporary history uh, and the history of the agreements and the the, the concerns that the Canucks had had, had and the in fact the, the violence, the the protests that had been made against some of the aspects of French possession. Uh, And then went on to talk about about the uh, gestures that France has made. It was moving in its uh, uh, recording of what France has done to give more independence to New Caledonia, the steps it has taken, the listening it has done over the decades Uh, And this has been a remarkable story, especially for a a power like France. Some of the accommodations it has made, the changes to its constitution, this in the very proud republic, uh, uh, accommodating, even pushes for uh, restrictions on electorates so that only people of very long standing in New Caledonia can vote in important matters um, in a country which has one vote, one man, one person, one vote. Uh, All of this was recorded very carefully. Bringing, bringing the reader or the listener up to where we are today. Uh, and it was also talking about how important uh, it is to recognize the Kanak identity, how Kanaks had made gestures to welcome and accommodate the uh, newcomers, as they see newcomers to their territory, uh, in including all people who live in New Caledonia in their vision for a common destiny for the future, really reminding everybody of what what was in the different agreements that have now expired, the Matignon and Eugene Accords of 1998, 1988 and the uh, 1998 Namir Accord, which has just uh, sadly expired, calling on everyone to use this spirit to inform debates in the future. So there are aspects of the document which I found uh, extremely touching and hopefully it will open the way for uh, others to listen too. Uh, uh, when I say this, I have to say that you know I have I have no opinion on on who should whether whether New Caledonia should become independent or anything. This is a matter for the mm. people of New Caledonia. Um, but it is very interesting to see it, it come to this stage. Especially you know it was just so disappointing in December of 2021 uh, to see a boycotted election a uh, boy- boycotted referendum. Sorry, um, because of all the the pressures of COVID and the 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 impact this had had on the Kanak culture and the Kanak community, um, where they had asked for a deferral of the referendum, which would have been a quite practical thing to do. They could do it up any time up to November of last year. Uh, until the community had recovered a little bit, um, but France persisted with the the vote at that time and we saw the devastating results, Uh, devastating in terms of the legitimacy of the referendum because the two previous out of three referendums, the two previous referendums had seen a majority for staying with France, um, but an ever-growing minority and a large minority for independence moving from 43% to 47%. With the Kanak boycott of the third referendum, uh, the the boycott was highly effective, really demonstrating the potential of Kanak independence leaders to call on their people to do what they want them to do, uh, with the result that only 3% voted for independence in that Referendum. Yeah, it
1: certainly. Sorry to cut you off, but yeah, it certainly does sound really encouraging. I just wanted to move on quickly because I know there's fresh talks coming up, uh, new talks coming up in June. What what do you think's next, and and where to from here?
5: Well, I think um, we needn't get too carried away. I think um, uh, from what I've seen so far, the result of the lawyers' reaction to what Mr. Wamita has said has not been very positive. They are now calling for recognition of the non canak Caledonian people using some of the language in ways which is probably not intended by Mr. Womita. Um, The French have announced a calendar of which the talks in June will be part. Um, The the, um, interior minister has said he will go to New Caledonia for those talks. Um, The FLNKs have always said, the independence coalition have always said they prefer to speak and to achieve anything in New Caledonia, not in Paris. So maybe there's some hope there for some movement. But looking at, at the uh, positions, the public positions, uh, the independence leaders have said the calendar the French have set suits them up till about September, uh, but they are not going to negotiate. Uh, they want independence. They want another a referendum. Uh, they have taken the issues to the United Nations and they're taking it to the International Court of Justice. So, um, having read closely what they're saying themselves, um, it's hard to see how things can kind of move along the way the French might like. The French have talked about having everything agreed, at least on a mini package before of agreements before the so planned uh, provincial elections next year, uh, but there's an awful lot to get through and there's no indication that either side is is going to be prepared to to do what's necessary to get to that. So I'm not confident in the medium term in that they can come to any kind of agreement, given the position, stated positions of each side. But I have a glimmer of hope, having Having listened to what's uh, what I've seen of what went on in Paris,
1: yeah, that's, that's interesting um, to hear. Um, I guess moving on, just uh, just closer to home, Australia's uh, foreign minister Penny Wong is set to meet with New Caledonia's president uh, Louis Mapa- Mapao this week. Uh, however, yes. he has said that he doesn't have uh, the flexibility or, or the means really of an independent of an independent country, I guess, to really do all that much uh, in relation to this visit. Is is it largely a symbolic visit, do you think?
5: I think it's an extremely important visit, and I think that we should be proud of having a foreign minister who has set herself the objective early in her term of visiting every single Pacific Islands Forum country or entity, Uh, I believe Southeast Asia as well, Uh, Her speech yesterday was um, an extremely impressive speech in which she talked about uh, the importance of listening to First Nations people. Uh, So I think she's going to be coming with uh, an open mind. Uh, Just the fact that she's meeting with Mr Mapu, this is a a wonderful thing. And let's not forget who, who created all these institutions. It is France, along with the loyalist parties, And the independence groups who got together and made these concessions amidst turmoil, amidst civil war, basically, civil civil Mm. disruption 30 years ago, they all made the concessions that allowed this government to be formed. It is a collegial government. It is not a majority government. So in that sense, it is a government which is representing all the parties of New Caledonia. What an amazing achievement of these peoples so close to us across the Coral Sea. It's it's wonderful, and and what we'd like to see, I think, is for them to build on this fabulous record of collaboration and peaceful coexistence and accommodating each other uh, for the future. And I'm sure, I hope that that will be a message that Ms Wong will bring uh, uh, as she as she makes her way for the first time. I believe it's the first visit by a foreign minister. I know our Governor General has met has visited there before, but it's it's a wonderful thing for her to. Um, to, uh, to, to, to visit New Caledonia. So let's hope that we can uh, have an articulation from the Australian government about how important it is for Australia as well as for the rest of the region that the parties in New Caledonia, France, the loyalists and the independence parties can get together and work out together a viable, durable future the way they did over the last 30 years with these other agreements.
1: Yeah, well, look, it'll be really interesting uh, to, to see what happens, and uh, and yeah, like you said, uh, uh, Minister Wong, she did very much want to see a, a. She's very much going to be bringing a First Nations perspective. So, yeah, look, I think uh, I think the platform is laid for it all to be uh, to be very encouraging. Um, Denise, that's all we've got time for today. Great insight as usual. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on Pacific Beat.
5: Thanks for having me, Kyle. Bye bye.
1: That was Denise Fisher, a visiting fellow at the Australian National University and former Australian consul to New Caledonia.
4: Hold
3: the front page.
1: And it's that time of the morning where we'll go, we'll jet set around the region to take a look at what's making headlines. And joining me to do that this morning again is Pacific Beat producer Evan Wazuka. Evan, good morning. Good morning, Kyle.
4: Yep, jet-setting right here into the studio with you.
1: <laughs> well, let's start in Fiji, which I reckon we both wish we could jet-set to Fiji Fiji this morning, uh, where there's a bit of criticism uh, on the coalition government of uh, Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka. What's happening there?
4: Yeah, so uh, over the past couple of days, Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka has been spending time to respond to criticism that the government was spending too much money on an event, and that's the National Economic Summit, So the Fijian Broadcasting Corporation is reporting that Rambuka has come out, saying that Cabinet has approved $360,000 to stage this summit and that some of those costs would be met by sponsors. Now, this summit is the brainchild of Deputy Prime Minister Biman Prasad, who is also the leader of the National Federation Party. So that's quite significant because the NFP is one of the coalition partners that make up the current coalition government. Um, But this event has been under attack by the opposition parties. They've been criticizing it, saying that a lot of money has been spent unnecessarily into the economic summit, which is about creating new jobs, but they're saying it's a bit of a waste of money. Uh, That's the opinion of the uh, opposition groups. Um, So the prime minister has come in to explain that that the government has only set a certain allocation – uh, Bhima and Prasad has also stepped in saying that there'll be some sponsorship to back the cost of this staging this big national event. But uh, it's interesting to see the, the dynamics happening and that Rambuka will now have to come out and defend the uh, deputy prime minister. So uh, lots of pressure on politically. Uh, we'll just have to keep an eye on how this situation will unfold over the coming days and weeks and what impact that will have on the coalition government because it's all about keeping the parties happy and together in order to maintain the current uh, uh, Rambuka government in place.
1: Yeah, interesting times uh, in Fiji. Let's move on. Let's head over to Papua New Guinea, where there's been some bad news on the Kokoda track, it seems. Yeah, so
4: the ABC is reporting that an Australian man has died while walking that famous World War II track. Um, The ABC reports that Pacific International Hospital has confirmed that a 48-year-old Australian was brought in over the weekend, but he was pronounced dead. The man had collapsed on the walk, uh, and those who were with him in that party had attempted to uh, give CPR. Now, uh, DFAT, that's the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, said in a statement that they were giving consular assistance to the families of the man. And the Kokoda Authority, the track authority, which is the body that looks after the track, um, they've contacted police and they're uh, going to start investigations. Now, Kyle, as, as as you well know, that thousands of Australians, they walk this track every year. The track retraces the steps of soldiers who were killed and wounded mm. uh, during the Second World War. And it's a, the four-month battle in that part of Papua New Guinea. Uh, this time of the year, April, is the peak period. That's when all the walkers are there uh, because this is the lead up to the Anzac Day uh, event. Mm. Uh, the track itself isn't an easy task. It's 96 kilometers long. And where you go through the Owen Stanley range, and it takes somewhere between four to twelve days, depending on uh, people 's fitness
1: yeah it 's a grueling track, and just on people 's fitness is there a baseline do you know if there's is there a baseline fitness level you have to achieve before you can do it, or can anybody undertake it
4: i 'm not too sure, but I assume there would be something there in place given the um the terrain and what 's involved mm. in this um in this walk.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, to end the news today, uh, we've got some uh, we've got some good news out of Vanuatu. It seems.
4: Yeah, we do, and a um, uh, g- good news for Vanuatu's economy. Cruise ships are making a return. Uh, this is after that double Category Four cyclone we had in February, uh, Judy and Kevin. Uh, that cyclone damaged the main wharf facilities, so cruise ships couldn't come in. Now repairs haven't been finished yet, but um, there is a temporary solution in place. Cruise ships will now come in and they'll anchor further out and they'll have small boats uh, bringing in passengers to shore. Now Muatai Seramai, who is the Minister for Tourism, said this is a significant boost for the tourism sector because tourism is one of the big earners for Vanuatu. Um, and he said that this arrangement will be in place while Vanuatu goes through a state of emergency, which is which is underway right now. Now the Minister for Climate Change, Ralph Rigan Vanu, <clears throat> said under the order... Um, the port authorities would only provide they'd provide a, a, a reduction in terms of tariffs for the ships who visit while Vanuatu is in a state of emergency. Um, this is significant because international cruise ships only return to Vanuatu in November after t- uh, two two and a half years of COVID um, border closures. So. Uh, it's good to see Vanuatu getting back into the swing of things in terms of the tourism industry.
1: Yeah, it is. It's great news. Great news for obviously the restaurants, bars, the storeholders, things like that. I'm I'm one of the many who ha- who has been on a cruise to to Vanuatu. It is it's a beautiful place and a, and a wonderful experience. Evan, thank you very much for joining us on News Wrap today.
4: Thank you, Kyle.
1: It's Tuesday, the 18th of April, and you're listening to Pacific Beat on Radio Australia. My name's Kyle Evans. Busy show so far, but still plenty more to come on the second half of today's program. We'll learn about a plan to harness temperatures in deep ocean waters in the Marshall Islands. and We'll also check in with an author who has written a book about Tonga's Malau bird and her journey to Tonga more than 30 years ago.
0: Inzane Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league. Featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Zane Rugby League. Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Your home of rugby league in the
1: Pacific. Well, many Pacific Island nations rely heavily on imported diesel for electricity, which is expensive and damaging to the environment. But one solution could involve harnessing the temperature differences between ocean surface waters and deep ocean waters. A small-scale trial of ocean thermal energy is underway in the Marshall Islands this year, but could it work on an industrial scale? Reporter Marion Farr spoke with the head of Griffith University's School of Engineering, Professor Rosalind Archer, to find out.
6: So the idea behind ocean thermal energy is that the Pacific and other countries in that sort of latitude have access to warm water at depth that you could bring to the surface and essentially take that thermal energy out of the water and transform it into electricity. Is it a viable option? It's still not widely used. There are some small pilot projects around. And it's, it's a technology that is probably struggling to take off. It's, it's something that sort of works well on paper, but thermodynamics tends to get in the way, as do the realities of the marine environment in terms of any kind of structures that have to be subject to wind and waves and water and the corrosion of the salt.
0: How could this be beneficial to the Pacific in particular? Well, the Pacific
6: is a case where there is often a lot of dependence in small island states on very expensive imported diesel, and that is an incredible financial burden for many um, Pacific nations. So releasing them from that burden is a really important angle of, of any renewable
0: energy generation technology that is deployed. And is ocean thermal energy considered a renewable energy? And like, what sort of environmental impacts could be associated with it?
6: It's definitely considered renewable energy. Uh, there's no um, sort of ongoing um, damage uh, to uh, the climate or to the water. The water chemistry is completely unchanged. The water is released back into the ocean. And in fact, there was a paper came out recently in Nature Communications, a very prestigious scientific outlet looking at this, saying that actually with global warming uh, and the oceans warming, ocean thermal energy um, may actually be more available to us than, than we'd previously thought. Um, sort of a, a side effect of global warming, that there will be more warm ocean available to access.
0: And has that? research i guess sparked new interests in this area i think in the pacific the most
6: recent project i'm aware of is being funded by the republic of korea who've had quite an interest in this space for a long time And just in February, they have put up aid funding to the Marshall Islands for an ocean thermal energy project. Um, But for scale, that project is only 50 kilowatts. So for scale 50 kilowatts, if you happen to have solar on your home, a decent sized home may well have a five kilowatt system on their own home. So that's... You know, 10 homes worth of of solar panels with sort of Queensland-style generation. So it is it is still a very small project. And in terms of what Korea are investing in the project, they're quoting it as a 5.2 million dollar aid investment for the Marshall Islands.
0: Wow, 5.2 million dollars to potentially uh, power 10 homes sounds like uh, doesn't sound like a cheap option for energy. Yeah,
6: so the 10 homes, is, that's the equivalent that you could generate by putting solar panels on 10 large homes. Um, so yeah, it is not cost competitive at the moment, but most, most technologies aren't when they start out. You have to start somewhere, you have to do some of these demonstration projects and, and learn. Um, but that project is advertised as being um, completed hopefully by the end of 2026.
0: How far away do you think we are from seeing this potentially become a solution for Pacific nations at a, at a bigger scale?
6: Uh, I mean, given that that project doesn't complete to end of 26,
0: I'd say you're looking at it at least 10 years. What do you see as being the positives and what do you see as being the negatives of ocean thermal energy?
6: The positive, the big positive is that it's available over time. So things like solar and wind are what's called intermittent. Obviously, wind is variable during the day. Solar is here with us by day. But to get through the night, you're going to need batteries. Batteries come with their their own challenges, both in expense and currently in the kinds of materials they're made of. Whereas ocean thermal is is there 24-7. It's always always there. Um, But there's sort of ongoing challenges around sort of construction and maintenance. There's issues around how efficient it is that you have to take a lot of water, uh, bring a lot of water up from deeper in the ocean to the surface and to get a very modest amount of electricity. So it's not especially efficient. Um, Things like um, wind generation are, are more efficient.
0: Mm. And talking about sort of moving large amounts of water um, in in the Pacific, I mean we've seen quite a reaction to the idea of deep sea mining, for example, recently, and um, the concerns about the risk of, of uh, disrupting the deep sea and um, the flow-on impacts that could have to the wider ocean ecosystem, and you know the the, the ocean being so vital to Pacific countries and ways of life are there many risks that we know of associated with ocean thermal energy in in terms of um, yeah risks to the environment risks to marine life and so forth
6: yeah inevitably any process that's bringing water up from deep in the ocean has some degree of impact but the depths they're going to would be well below the depths that there is any fishing or um, that kind of um, animal animal life. I mean, they would be going um, 600 metres, 1,000 metres. So they're, they're going deep into the ocean. Um, so disrupting animal communities, fishing communities at the, the near surface isn't a risk. Um, but no, it, it's not necessarily disruption-free. Um, but relatively relatively low on pay.
1: Professor Rosalind Archer from the Griffith University speaking there with Marion Farr. Well, Tonga's native Malau bird is one of the last surviving of its kind and now efforts to save it have been turned into a new book. The book is titled Volcanic Adventures in Tonga and it follows biologist Anne Gerth's cons- conservation efforts to save the bird in the 1990s. She told me the experience changed her life.
7: When I was a young conservation biologist, I had the opportunity to go to Tonga and to carry out a species conservation project for the endangered Malau bird, on this remote island called O in Tonga. I went there together with my partner, it was just the two of us, but we were supported by a German university. And the aim was to help the Malau bird. to basically develop some more uh, protection measures for the Malau bird, find out how many there were left, and also try to translocate some eggs to another volcanic island in Tonga to establish another population.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that bird and what kind of things your research for- from back then, Unveiled.
7: Uh, yeah, that malaw bird is very special among birds because it belongs to this group of birds called megapodes, and they're the only birds in the world which do not sit on their eggs to incubate the eggs themselves. So what they do, they use external heat sources, so heat sources outside their body, to incubate. And the Malau bird uses the volcano as an incubator. So it basically burrows its eggs in the soil and near the crater lake on that island where the soil is heated by the volcano and then their little chicks stick themselves out once they have hatched all by themselves and they never really stay with their parents so they're very special and unique and there was nothing known really about first about their behavior and also what what they need to survive in terms of food and what, which kind of forests they live in and but a lot of our work was also just establishing how many were left because the local people on neofo have the tradition of digging up the eggs. Uh, At least at that time, there was still quite a strong custom for their own consumption. Being such a remote island, they really uh, appreciated that natural resource as a food source. So we worked with the locals to get them to understand that that is not very sustainable. So it was a lot with working with the locals, trying to uh, uh, um, find some protection measures for the birds.
1: And how did the locals take to you at first when you arrived?
7: Oh, I think they were a bit suspicious. You know, why would these people come from the other side of the world, to young people to just for, for, to study a bird? That was really hard for them a little bit to understand. But on the other hand, uh, I think they did appreciate that. You know, we would come to, to study the bird and they didn't know that it's, it's special for their own island. They were proud of the, the bird and, and they were proud to share their culture with us as well. I guess when you travel to a new place like that, you really need to accept that the local customs are very different to, to our own and uh, and, you know, it's no good criticizing those you really have to adapt to how the locals live and there were some things that we found you know challenging and it was really good to challenge ourselves one of them is and the tongans listeners might agree with me is the tongan concept of time which which is very different um you know that concept of tongan time which basically says that you really live in the now and in the moment and you don't think too much of the future. And that that's basically the Tongan version of mindfulness. And in some way, that, that's really great. But it would drive us crazy sometimes when we would try to organize things, like having to wait for a boat to go somewhere. And the Tongans would tell us three random answers. It seemed random to us. And one of them was like, in a while, and I've just looked up again what it says, the Tongans please apologise my pronunciation. In a while it means ihakiivaha. Then they would say sometimes in a little while, which would be I-ha-ki-i-ta-i-mi-si. and sometimes they would say in a long while, it would be i So we would always get these answers, you know, and never really find out when would a boat arrive and when would be able to pack our things or organise things. So that can be quite challenging working with that concept of time in Tonga.
1: <laughs> Island time, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that that laid back culture, though? Do you think that rubbed off on you in some ways? Oh,
7: absolutely! Yeah, no, it's, it is it is a great. You know, people here work hard to develop the concept of mindfulness, and I think the Tongans really have that down, to nailed down already a lot.
1: Now, what about your your adventures and your experience? It's inspired you to write to write the book.
7: I wouldn't remember all the details thirty years later, but what I did on the island, I wrote really detailed letters to my mum. My mum was based in Europe and she received those letters and she just thought they were so exciting that she typed them all up on her old typewriter. So I had all these typed up letters and then, you know, there was this thing called lockdown when many other books got written and I reread all those letters and just thought, well, actually that makes a, makes a good story, I think.
1: And were you able to leave a legacy in, in, uh, in relation to the Malau bird? Were you able to create a more sustainable future for it?
7: Oh, that is a really good question. I wouldn't just say straight out yes, that um I was really we were really young. We worked very hard with the local people, we were friends with the local policemen and also our host family was that of the local chief. So we did talk to them a lot about the Malau and why it was important that for, for example that they shouldn't let their goats and their uh, run free in those areas where the Malau is still really common because they eat a lot of vegetation. We also talk to the local school children so to get them to understand what this was all about and now of course with my book written i have sent copies of the book to tonga to the local school to the local chief and hopefully again that will help and also following our work when we established that there weren't that many malau left that really instigated for the international union for the conservation of nature they're called IUCN, to send uh, or some more people there to really classify the bird as endangered and there were other people went there to try to do some more conservation work and also establish how many birds were left. And that was done yeah, together with, with representatives from the Tongan government.
1: And Gerb there, author of Volcanic Adventures in Tonga, species, species Conservation on Tin Can Island. And if you want to have a read, you can find that one on Amazon or Wheelers if you're in New Zealand or just simply by Googling the title. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6 a.m. PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3 p.m. PNG time. Stay tuned on ABC Radio Australia because the news is next. Have a fantastic day.